Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Dice Divide Live. Hey. We'll get the sound effects sorted out eventually. <laughs> uh, I'm your host, <laughs> Adam. Yeah. It is always with me, the wisest of Ken size, the Chandler to my Joey, John. I'm not sure I approve of this, but <laughs> probably fine. It's a bit of a dated reference. We'll, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll take it, we'll take it. Yay, John! And then uh, also with us tonight is a, a buddy of mine, a very special guest. Michael, or as some people call him, Barakil. Good evening, everybody. Welcome, welcome. How are you doing, man? So far, so good. We're uh, living the dream here in the Bay Area in California. No complaints. Perfect. So uh, what's everyone drinking tonight, John? Uh, I am enjoying something from Colorado, a Breckenridge Spice Whiskey. It's quite nice. Very uh, nippy, I guess is the right word for it. Sounds lovely. Michael? Cup of coffee for me right now, but maybe uh, Lagavulin 16 in about 15 or 20 minutes. You know, oh, yeah, wind the evening down right. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm just finishing off. I'm, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm finishing off my 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 go-to, which is my Montucky cold snack with their wonderful pride can. And then as soon as that's done, I'm kicking open my Gilgamesh Mamba, which is a rad little uh, brewery down in Salem. And I love that drink so much that I had a keg of it at my wedding. So, oh, very good. There you go. It's a damn good beer. Well, uh, cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers, indeed. Let's, let's get this party started with some news. All so, right. Yeah. Uh, some new, amazing, fantastic news. It's weird using new and news in the same sentence. Um, I'm going to roll with it, though. Uh, so we have our first, like, for realsy sponsor, and that is Brutal Cities. You can see some of their lovely, amazing, gorgeous terrain here. Nice. Yep. And yeah, for those of a... you on the uh, podcast, you can check out your podcast chapters for a picture of what Adam's talking about, right? Oh, man. This this stuff is so cool. Um, I had a really long chat with him. Uh, turns out that the, the guy who runs it is a, a reader of my blog. So, soft uh-huh. pat in the back. Self five. Yeah, I'll take it. Self five, self five. Yeah. He makes. This is like this is my dream terrain. Like I, I love Blade Runner. I want like I've I want brutalist architecture inside of Infinity. Like I I want that. Um it's also like an amazing starting place for me where I heavily modify my terrain. Um so like they're really great canvases to work from and they're huge. That building in the lower right hand corner there, you could also see here, there's like a hawk towel up on the roof right there. Oh yeah. Like oh wow. Looked- I like that. I like that a lot. Right, it looks small in the picture, but he actually designed them to be roughly to scale. Yeah, like mm-hmm. functional buildings. They are still small buildings by actual scale, but they're 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 building sized. You know, like that big guy. Oops, that big guy in the lower left, right there. You can see it down here with those guys all around its base. Oh, I see. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I'm impressed by the playability of it too. You know, mm-hmm. you don't get any of those keyholes or anything that's too decorative yeah. that doesn't really have an in-game function you know it looks like uh infinity style bases or really any game system will have bases that that fit there really easily really conveniently yeah. uh, which is a nice consideration for us gamers yeah i yeah. think it'll even work well for like modern like modern settings sure um yeah near future well, stuff yeah oh, yeah 40k like it's pretty pretty substantial terrain like 40k needs that big chonky line mm-hmm. of fight or line of fire blocking stuff um i just can't wait to get my hands on this and like put lights in it and like piles of garbage and all the graffiti and stuff 
it's going to be a blast. So he's actually going to be sending us a table of terrain, John, uh, to, I'm going to do some, uh, some assembly videos on Twitch. So you guys will be able to catch that. that we're watching. I will, I will watch right. them as you assemble them. And right. I'm, glad I'm not doing it. And I'm also going to be, uh, be painting them and modding them. Um, so that's going to be super fun. Oh, one other playability thing that I just remembered, um, since you mentioned that, Michael, is that they have playable interiors, but only the top floor. Oh. Okay. Um, cool. Except for the apartment building. But the apartment building works because the entire backside of the building is a panel that comes off. Nice. It's a dollhouse for our space doll. Yeah, exactly. It's perfect. I Excellent. love space doll. Excellent. Um, Seems like this fellow so yeah, thought of I, everything. No, he, 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 he's a, uh, he went to school for architecture. He is an architect. That was his day job, and he quit being an architect. Um, to do this thing? To, to, do, to make tiny buildings. That's Amazing. awesome. I, I, I want a professional to design my uh, little MDF worlds. Right? That's incredible. I mean, I'm stoked. I can't wait. So, uh, John, what else have you got going on over there with Bromat Academy? Yeah, well, just as a reminder, uh, this month we're running the Ford Observer mission. Basically, take a Ford Observer bot, so messenger class bots or the specialist operative bots in Code 1. Um, they're speedy specialists. The N3 version has a bajillion tools, sensors, sat lock, all kinds of fun stuff. Take it. Use it. Uh, we're still running the uh, painting contest for this quarter, which is paint anything you can use in Code 1. Send all of that over to report at bromanticacademy.com and win some free stuff, maybe. Um, yeah, and we'll, we'll kick off on a new quarter painting mission uh, next month and a new mission for Broman Academy as well. Um, yeah, so that's it on Broman Academy. But uh, we got some more news from, from CB. Uh, and yes. so they've got some pretty dope uh, new artwork for the Defiance uh, game they've been working on for a long time, and they announced White yeah. Company is coming. So I am I am pretty jazzed about White Company. Finally, a place where uh, John Lockwood or is his name right can uh, John Hawkwood. 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 Yes, can yes. Uh, can do some stuff. So I smashed together the artwork that they made and made a recruitment poster for White Company. <laughs> nice. There? Did you read the little? Uh, did you read the article on them? I did. I did. There's some interesting stuff coming out of that. I think. I, I think I'm pretty sure, um, you know, like, well, some people are a little upset that Kaplan might not be in there, but it sounds like, what is it, Yu Jing and Pano and Aleph yeah. as like a, as a yeah. triad. Probably Bikini make it in, you know, a bunch of other random things. You could still fit Kaplan in there, though, right? Because, like, sure. yeah. the Kari company has has Drews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely some ideas to get uh, to get used to in there, because White Company, of course, being the good guys once upon a time, featuring Kaplan. And so... Right. I mean, hopefully we will see those Kaplan because I think that the the trio of factions being included sounds promising, but it's sort of out of left field as well. Yeah, it's yeah. a little. It's a little different. I I can't help but look at look at the logo and think of the um, the Zapdos logo. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Yes, of course. Like, yes, that is one hundred percent. All I see when I'm looking at that, I'm like, okay, cool. This, this is the Zapdos faction. I, I mean, kind of I want. I mean, it, it does make sense, I suppose, right? Thinking about it, Cald- Caldstrom just dropped, and that's Eugene and Pano. So I imagine White Company will see some some uh, crossover with that particular set of units, just to get people interested, like you know, to reward people who bought the box for themselves, right? Because some people will split yeah. it with the buddy, but now you can just have it all for yourself. Right. You know, yeah. You said or we know yeah. CB is being methodical too about sort of every possible permutation of faction combination, and so uh, 
now we're getting the Pano using a lift turn. Yep. Yeah, that'll that'll be interesting. I'm curious. It's it's. it's I mean, like, there's so much available now, to, especially to Pano and using with the last two, you know, the last couple of new armies being added. That like, the, it could be a totally like a heavy infantry smash fest, right? Like because mm-hmm. they both have amazing HI, or it could be absolutely not that. Like, there's a uh, there's kind of a lot to pick from there. It, it'll. I'm really curious to see what they go with. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think uh, CB has a wonderful capacity for being able to surprise us. You know, we we get yeah. the the premise of what a, a faction or a sector is going to be, and we build it out in our head, and then the actual release often ends up being wildly different than what we anticipated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. uh, like a, um, uh, the Merc- uh, Starco is like that for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, a that foreign or... company as well. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, foreign company was a big surprise to me as well. But that's Definitely was not expecting what was in there at all. <laughs> no, but like, Uber, Uber fall. Like I was like, what? Huh? Okay, sure. Right. Why not? Yeah, yeah. Most so there'll be plenty of minis to build in the future, I'm sure. Speaking of speaking of which, Adam, what have you been working on in hobby? Yeah, so uh, not a lot lately, but I did get the Gaspez Arts uh, Chaos Dwarf team in, um, and I built them immediately. Um, you do you love know, your so, chorfs. Oh my god! So like Michael knows that I was a, a fantasy player back in the day, um, and what? Oh Michael, yeah. What you don't know, Michael, is I used to have about 8,000 points of the old metal tall hat chaos dwarfs. Oh, that's amazing. That eventually, that unfortunately got stolen. Um, oh. But they have always, they have long held a place in my heart. Now that we've been playing uh, Blood Bowl lately amongst us, um, I kind of looked to see what chaos dwarf teams were out there. And this company, Gaspez Arts, makes a team that is like the new scale of miniatures um, in a kind of a more new style, but absolutely the old aesthetic nice like, uh, very nice all hats the big curly beards the mustaches the go or the the eyebrows that go over the hat and the tusks it's it's yep. spot on the old chaos dwarves yeah that bull centaur looks great too oh yeah he does his hat is fantastic <laughs> it takes me back to uh 1990s style games workshop design oh, it's like nice to see all that carry through yes it's so fun it's so fun I'm just looking forward to being able to meet up in person and smash John with my chaos dwarfs. Oh man, nice. yeah. I still got to mod up my uh, Stumptown Cripsters with uh, some square frame glasses and flannel. That's yeah, gonna be a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's, gonna, it's gonna take a while. I'm terrible at green stuff, but it's on. It's on, It's in the queue. I'll uh, I'll help educate you a little bit. Yeah, Remy, they're um, hiding secrets under those hats for sure. Right. So have you uh, have you managed to get anything done at all, John? I have surprisingly. I actually oh. finished two models painted. Um, so one is Intruder Banana, so named because he was shooting at a uh, Ulan out of cover with surprise shot and managed to roll 17, 17, 18, 19, and the Ulan Ooh. shot him back with the Fuhrerbach on a one. So that was <laughs> exciting. He prices right to you, man. Like... That was like the first time I took him out for serious at like, a tournament, too, and I was like, well, Intruder HMGs suck. Why would I ever use one? So finally painted him up, and um, you probably can't see in the video, but his his magazine has a has a bit of yellow tape on it, which I think is appropriate. And then the Aguasil MSR, I painted up for Pete's um, Pete Setchel's Gamescape painting contest. So uh, yeah, I just it was the it was the nearest model physically, so I just grabbed it and painted it, and that was that was that. Um, but a few other things I've I've been putting together. Putting together some uh, some a left for for no reason whatsoever. Not nobody should be concerned about that at all. Oh, uh, and then um, 
then the so there's two Yadu and and then the um, uh, what is the the TO infiltrator guys Dasu right is that what it is Oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. The, either that or the Mark II Yeah I have I have the proxy box I haven't put it together yet but it's coming and then uh, of course the Zensha DEP who doesn't who doesn't love that and then um, actually this happened probably about half hour before we started the show uh, and it was a big surprise to me but um, an old friend of mine who used to run this game store back in Ithaca, New York, called the Enchanted Badger, which is sadly no longer with us. So drink one for a uh, sure. lost game store. But um, yeah, so she she played uh, she played uh, combined way back in N2 when the extra was still around. So okay. you know now that she's been seeing my battle reports and stuff on Instagram and all that stuff, she's like, well, I, I don't really use them. Uh, I don't really have time for it. The store is gone. Really plays here anymore. I just want to see them to go to a good home where they'll actually see table time. So I got this in the mail. Uh, and it just was sitting on my doorstep when I when I woke up this morning. And uh, yeah, it's oh, wow. the old the old school CA drones. Um, uh, and she had a Gorgos too for some random reason. Oh, is and, it unbuilt? Yeah, it's unbuilt. Yep. That's a commodity. That's yeah. a serious commodity. And then That's beautiful. Her, she's also a professional artist, so uh, I definitely have to do some repair on some stuff that got damaged in transit. But you know, she definitely. I have, I have uh, the beginnings of a uh, you know, pretty pretty awesome CA army just in this little box. So thank you, Stasia. Nice. I'm, I'm very How many hundreds is that? Uh, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't do. I didn't get a chance to do a full assessment. There's. There's a couple extra in there. Um, so I, I actually did at least seven, two full sets, eight yeah, in total. I think so. maybe? Yeah. yeah. Oh man. So that's happening. Coming to a table near you soon. I think I might unleash them on Eric this Thursday. So uh, he and I oh, have a, a game of supremacy scheduled. So unleash them on my ridiculous remote gaming rig so we'll see how that goes but yeah, yeah that was not... a that was a very unexpected surprise so it's very uh both you know, bittersweet you know kind of a uh, reminder of a, a great game store that i spent a good seven years at an old friend basically yeah that's what i had that's yeah. what i had uh, going I can, on i can say i am not excited to the, at the prospect of having to play against you using predas <laughs> like, that be, is it'll be fine it'll be fine they don't have em weapons like morlocks it'll be okay no sure true 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 um no i'm not excited about that at all so but fortunately um you know we're in the middle of a pandemic so i have to deal with that for a while um that's one way to look at it <laughs> talk about your blessings in disguise i guess yeah. not having to deal with uh eight hungries screaming across the table at you i'm taking these lemons and turning them into lemonade that's the go. spirit <laughs> so so with that um let's go ahead and talk about our main the main feature, right? Like the uh, the the point of, of getting together tonight, which is really to kind of talk about um, positioning in games. And this is kind of a a thing that I feel like people need to learn early on. Um, and it's something that John is also uh, particularly passionate about. Passionate enough that he's the reason why we're doing this episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's 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 absolutely valid. Like it, it's a pretty critical thing in basically every game that you can play. Yeah, um, so, sure. John, why don't you why don't you take it away a little bit and talk about what you mean by it? Yeah, and then uh, give us some examples. Yeah. So, full disclosure, sometime in the past, I wanted to be a professor, and uh, that died a horrible death. So, this is my outlet for that part of me that's still alive—the vestigial tale of professorhood. Anyway, um, yeah. So, basically, professor we should start John. with the definition of um, what we mean by positioning. What I mean, I guess, uh, the most simplistic definition is board state, right? So. Uh, if you think about any any game you might play, it's not just where stuff is, it's when stuff is, right? So there's two things going Whoa. in hand. 
Um, That's some wicked shit right there. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, you think about Go, Chess, I mean, Blood Bowl, Warhammer, Infinity, doesn't matter. Everything is a place on the table and it develops over turns in time, right? So if you look at specifically um, uh, Go, I want to just touch on a few things, right? So um, Go is a, is a game of, of area control. You want to enclose territory mm -hmm. with unbroken lines of stones, right? So uh, effectively, stones exert influence over them, right? Okay. Um, you can spend all of your moves, right? So basically, like, you want to have, at the end of the game, you want to have, like, the biggest box of your color stone, either white or black, and a bunch of empty space inside that box, right? So you could start the game by literally drawing a box of stones, right? And that would work, but it would be very inefficient because if you look at this set of opening moves here, right? So the white player has sort of blocked off the left side of the board here, but the black player has blocked off the left and bottom and a little bit of the top. Right, so they've both mm. played the same number of stones, but the black player has exerted more influence over the board. Right, and you can sort of see that um, this is a heat map of of commonly played uh, six, the first six moves, and you can see there's a lot of stones in the corner. They're the darker ones, right? So this is just uh, the darker they are, the more common the move is. Um, and so you can see they're in the corner most of the time for the first six moves. And why is that? Well, when you're when you're trying to um, Enclose an area, well, you can use the side of the board to enclose the area for you, right? So if you sure. look at this corner here, this top part and this part, uh, like the top uh, top right part of the, the area is already enclosed by the board for you. So you have to use basically a, a half as many stones to do it as if you did, you know, in, in the middle where you have to draw a whole, all four sides of the box. And yeah, so, okay, well... We do that a lot in Infinity. We do that all the time in Infinity. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. So the idea is that you want to, like, like... Like stones, models exert influence on them, right? So yeah. if you imagine this as, you know, deployment zones, what's happening here, right? So if we draw a line across the middle, this is a deployment zone, uh, or maybe uh, from the top to the bottom, right? So the left side is player one, the right side is player two. Um, so you have this deployment zone. The right side is a, the, the player on the right. Uh, so the white player is a little stronger on the bottom, right? Because he's got more stones there, but it's a weakness in the middle. And the same with yeah. the black player, right? So... So the idea is that uh, you you want to cover areas of the board, but you don't want to over-concentrate. Because basically the idea is that, um, like putting a bunch of stones in the corner to wall off an area, you are very strong there, but you're strong nowhere else, right? Mm -hmm. And so you need to strike this balance, because if you spread out too far, then there's a lot of gaps in your formation that your opponent can exploit, and just like run a bike or a warband through, right, to go back to it. So that's sort, right. of, that's sort of like the overarching... <clears throat> thing right you have to look at where all your stuff is how that stuff moves around the table how it develops over time and um you know like what areas does it cover and how does it so yeah that's basically the, the the beginnings of things um so i guess we can start talking about a few things like positioning and time um, yeah yeah so like uh deployment is a great example of that in infinity right you it's the first turn of the game it's a zero a turn as we sometimes like to say so um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, like, you know, maybe we can talk about how how one might deploy uh, to control the board and then respond later, right? So, I know you wrote an article about um, deployment it helps helps you position yourself on the board in time. Sure. No, yeah, I think I think that this is where we can start really kind of tying these these broader concepts um, that we're using a go kind of back to uh, you know back to the point of talking about like infinity in other, in other games. Um, you know, just like in infinity, if you castle up in a corner you're not going to exert control over the table, right? So, like, it's it's funny how in Go, it's almost a one-to-one -one analogy models for influence area, at least on the opening plays. Right. Because uh, you're yeah, on... That's a, 
It's definitely an effective parallel because I think you need to recognize when you need to master strength in a given area, you know, consolidate mm -hmm. your presence in a given sector at the table, whether that's during deployment or as the game unfolds, uh, versus maintaining spacing, you know, keeping your troops distributed for safety reasons or keeping your troops distributed in order to exert pressure on different areas of the table simultaneously. Uh, and it's all about finding that balance, right? And being able to apply that to the tactical situation at hand. Yeah, something I think you you gloss over really quickly there, John, was that I think is worth actually kind of exploring a little bit more, is this whole idea that um, what you're really doing is you're kind of in infinity, right? You're establishing a territory, you're establishing the area that you control, and then learning how to kind of probe and attack the opponent while defending your own. Sure. Um, I think, I think that's, that's, yeah, I think that's a big part of any turn-based game too, right? Is obviously, even in a hyper-interactive game like Infinity, you still have to weather your opponent's turn. You still have to yeah. stage thinking of future turns, hoping that your opponent is not in a position to counterattack you and undo what you've done in your own turn. Uh, and that's significant. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's even exactly what, what we're doing when we play Blood Bowl all the time. Like when you're in possession of the ball... You are you're caging up, right? You you build your little defensive block, and then you're probing the the defensive line, trying to find a weakness to get through before you ultimately go score a point. Um, I, so yeah, I think that that's a, a really kind of interesting analogy. And it's funny how that goes back to something um, as fun, you know, kind of as fundamental as go. Yeah, right? like I mean, go is yeah, been around for a while. I mean, Blood Bowl kind of looks like go if you squint a little bit, right? <laughs> so you can sort of see here, it's right here. I mean, it's the same general idea, right? Just to, just to show that you can sort of be reductionist <clears throat> about things and reduce um, the overall concept of the whole game, even if like this guy's an HM, this guy's a combi rifle, right? They're fundamentally different things, but you can sort of abstract them away to a dot, right? So here's a defensive yeah. uh, running play in Blood Bowl where the guy with the ball, cartoon ball here, is hidden behind the screen of players, and the white players or stones want to attack them, but there's an area of strength here. These stones are spaced appropriate, where these players are spaced, right? So you can sort of think about um, basically geometry on the board, right? So if you have like a, a couple of, like two two infiltrators in the midfield, they form a very loose sort of um, squishy line that's easily penetrated. But if you stack multiple of them with mines, that line becomes much stronger and harder to penetrate, right? So you can sort of abstract that way as well. Right, so just kind of like also infinity, um where if you have your models kind of thinly spread out over an area, it, it covers a lot of ground, but a focused attack can can you know dig a hole right into your defenses mm -hmm. pretty rapidly. It's always interesting too with Infinity how sometimes you create a, a double-edged sword uh, for yourself because you know we can all envision the sniper up in a tower, TO sniper up in a tower, capable of seeing the entire board, but reciprocally can be seen by lots of opposing threats. And so there we've created a situation where we're dealing with a situation where you're able to project tremendous power, but you're doing so perhaps for a limited duration or you're creating a high risk, high, uh, high reward scenario for yourself, um, which is interesting, interesting to contemplate. I'm trying to think about how that would apply to Go or other game systems as well. I mean, uh, for me, the first intuitive leap that I would take is to attack surface. 
in uh, computer security, mm. right? So attack surface, a simple example is the more web servers you have for your corporation, the larger attack surface you have. There's just more stuff to probe at. There's more affordances to grab onto, right? So the TO sniper, there's a big attack surface. It's the size of the board. But if you have a sniper mm. watching a very particular fire lane, it's very strong there, but the attack surface is small. And you can think of that like um, in, uh, in Go, it's an isolated stone, right? So uh, there's a stone in the corner by itself, um, and uh, it's pro it's projecting threat there, right? The opponent has to respond to that because if he doesn't, eventually you'll take you'll take more stones in that area when you have the opportunity to. But it's also very weak by itself. So kind of a broken broken metaphor at this point, but that's something that would be close. It it actually speaks to the very first ritual that I initiate in any game of Infinity that I play. You know, once table side has been resolved and classifieds are drawn, the very first move I make in deployment is assuming I'm playing an army with flash pulse bots, I immediately identify three very specific narrow lanes and my flash pulse bots go down first. And uh, in some ways it's almost meditative because it gets me, it's sort of a low pressure situation. All I'm doing is putting out a couple of eight point remotes, but I'm thinking about tactically how I can leverage that 24 inch flash pulse and it helps to transition my mind into playing a game of infinity while also serving a very useful purpose, you know, establishing sidelines, setting up a defense, denying area. Right. And I think, I think um, Remdog kind of hit, hit the nail on the head with this one, which is like, when you have one of those snipers, um, it's like, no matter what you do in infinity, you're threatening a territory. Um, it just might meet, it might be less, um, less directly next to it than go where go, go, almost might be more analogous to a close combat game because you're inter directly interacting with the ones right around you where yeah. infinity you're still you're still fundamentally doing the same thing you're still projecting a threat over a territory yeah a lot of, a lot of the terms in go are like shoulder hit right so it, it mm -hmm. does borrow some of the close combat field terms interesting um well, this is this is really fun i like this so let's uh i think you started so yeah i interrupted you when you started to go on about um about what we're talking about, like, so positioning in time, right? So mm -hmm. your position isn't just a static point on the table, but it's also, uh, it's, it's temporal, right? It's right. So I guess, I guess one interesting uh, thing to, to jump off of what Michael said about flashball spots, right? It's kind of like mm -hmm. a chess opening because your chess opening, if I may be so bold is to put down three flashball spots in the, the correct spot. Um, and that's that's basically a programmed response. You don't have to think about it. Just like in a chess game, you shouldn't have to think about your first like 15 moves, right? You're just like, pawn goes here, knight goes here, bishop goes there. Okay, we're good, right? And you just iterate, and then you respond to how your opponent's doing it. Uh, there, there, you may you may do a variation on your opening. And it's it, it's, it's uh, we're not piece by piece deploying things in infinity, so the metaphor isn't quite perfect, but um, it's there. So, you know, you look at a table and you should great you should analogy, have a, great you should, metaphor. Yeah, yeah. You should have a you should have a feel for it. Um, and so part of part of that also is not just like, OK, I know what I'm doing. Like I feel I'm, I've mastered my army like for, for you, you know, flashball spots come first. For me, I put down things like Morans because I know like I want to control the center. I feel very comfortable putting out uh, koalas and I may shift them if I need to. Right. But that's sort of like where I start. I say like, I want to establish a, a defensive line. That's how I think about things. Um, but it, it's different for everyone. Yeah, that book of this kind of idea of like your your set of openings. Right. Like I think we do this a lot. Um, kind of especially as competitive infinity players where it's like we know the mission we know our army we already know what we're going to do the first maybe even the first turn but like the first six orders right like i see the opponent's army cool those are the arrow pieces 
slice the pie, kill that one, slice the pie, kill that one, slice the pie, kill that one, mm-hmm. go up to get my box. Right. Like what you're playing against is almost irrelevant at that point. It's only it becomes more relevant as the game further develops because the game is going to develop differently. But what you're dealing with on that very first turn on that on, on the opening is fundamentally the same no matter what armor you're playing against. There's like camo, yes or no? Are there mines, yes or no? Are there ARO pieces, yes or no? Mm-hmm. Like you're going to handle all of those roughly the same regardless of the army. Yeah. Um, and then it's yeah, yeah. I find this is particularly useful not just for one-off games, uh, mm-hmm. but especially if you're at a three-game event or a five-game event where it is actually quite a lot of mental strain. I mean, you mm-hmm. might be surrounded by a hundred players. You maybe you've had a lot to drink, you're playing five different missions, maybe you know your opponent, maybe you don't know your opponent, and that creates its own points of stress. Uh, maybe you haven't eaten that well. There are all of these external factors. And People the more that, playing? Right, right, right. I mean, the, the more that you can create for yourself uh, a stable routine, that book of openings, uh, the easier it is to be able to shift your mindset into playing a competitive game of Infinity. And while I don't want to use the term autopilot, the more that you don't have to, you know, brain drain the opening of your games, uh, the more it sort of frees up mental bandwidth for the actual tactical and strategic decisions. Yes. And, and it's part a little of the, bit of a tangent, but I, well, I kind of wanted to talk on the specifically the word you used, autopilot. Because um, last, so last episode, John and I talked about, like, what we do as players to get good. And um, one of the things that I try to do is actually develop a strong autopilot. Um, which is just kind of funny. Like there is, the, you know, it, it sounds um, almost dismissive of your opponent to, to consider the first turn autopilot. But um, I like making mistakes because those mistakes stay in my brain longer, and then I just instinctually pick the uh, the better path to go down uh, during my opening. Right. So um, I am almost developing a, a smart autopilot um, as I get my ass kicked by my <laughs> by my opponents in various games, or as I just do stupid stuff. Um, it's like, wow, yeah, really should never, ever have done that. Okay, now I know. Like, instead of, instead of taking the time, um, people put a lot of, will put a lot of mental drain on themselves, like, really running the numbers in their head, trying to figure out, like, mathematically, is this a good shot? Do I take my burst three on tens versus their burst two on thirteens? Uh, I don't know, you know, they're, and they're, they're, like, causing all this extra threat in themselves, where sure. if they just roll the dice, accept the fault, they might lose this game, but they'll know for next game to kind right. of refine that uh, that concept of, of, of how you're going to open. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, just a little, like I said, a little bit of a tangent. It's, But, I mean, auto, the, the, I guess autopilot is kind of a, an interesting word here because, I mean, the one of the points I've written down in the notes is that you, you should have an idea for what you do in the mid-game. After your, you know, your chess opening is over, you should know generally like, okay, well, this tool I use often, like, a, I don't know, Kreeza HMG, right? Like, I'm going to go murder all your arrow pieces with this thing because that's what it's for, right? So you, you quote-unquote, autopilot into that. But your deployment should in your, your opening should help you in the second and third turn, right? So you should have a plan going in. So I think, I think mm-hmm. you definitely develop stuff like you know just just preparing for a, uh, a tournament with you it's like okay well here's my list here's our plan to use it this hunzacut lgl is there to grenade the crap out of the deployment zone so as sure. i develop the position of the hunzacut lgl over the course of the first turn i'm going to just like r- push her closer to the deployment zone that's what i'm going to do. so um yeah i think i think joe's uh joe's point of of using heuristics instead of autopilot is probably sure. a, a better a better uh, terminal for sure thanks joe um yeah 
So, so that's sort of um, one one thing we can talk about, which is you know how do you develop after your deployment, but uh, we can also talk about how do you respond, right? So there's there's this idea of okay, well, in, in Infinity, you don't really get to see anything if you're deploying first, right? You, all you see right. is the table. You have no idea what your you don't even know your opponent's list, right? You're like okay, well you're playing I don't know US Ariadne or something. Okay, well I know have a general idea of what to expect. But your person I don't play very often, and the person I play all the time may take something very different most of the time. Uh, so I need to sort of anticipate, like, okay, well, what is your side of the table like? Where are likely fire lanes that you're going to contest, and so on. So I have to anticipate what you're trying to do, right? Uh, as mm -hmm. opposed to mm -hmm. going second in deployment, where I can just respond to what. You right. It's actually kind of an interesting thought that I think doesn't come up a lot in um, in the whole vanilla versus sectoral discussion, mm -hmm. which is not only does having access to the whole arsenal of vanilla give you different tools to work with it also means your opponent has far fewer uh, or far less knowledge of what you're going to bring um you were talking about playing usa you know what i'm playing with usa the sneakiest thing i have is van zant you can probably do the math in two minutes you know two seconds just by looking at what i have to be like huh he's got like 30 some odd points off the board van zant's gonna come along you could have five uh, airborne rangers hey I, that was fun um <laughs> <clears throat> but but, you know, the, this whole idea of, like, creating a situation for your, to add stress to your opponent, Vanilla does that inherently. I don't know what's under that camo token when I play against Vanilla Ariadna. If I go against USA, I know it's a Foxtrot or maybe a harder case. Um, that came up in an interesting fashion when I was uh, thinking recently about Svalheima Winter Force because... Even straightforward sectorials tend to have at least some degree of duplicity, right? And mm -hmm. an airborne infiltration unit and airborne deployment units sure. along those lines, uh, and that's that's almost non-existent for Svalahima. And I'm, I'm not necessarily naysaying Svalahima, but they've released a sectorial where I think the only possible unknown factor during deployment is where the kunai could be if you were to take a kunai and that's literally the only unknown variable yeah. everything else totally forecasted to your opponent because there's uh no unknown camouflage and there's no airborne um deployment units wow okay that's um that's a thing right like that's a that's a big it's, deal. it's bizarre right i mean even even not having a a 20 something point uh, airborne trooper that can possibly walk in at some point. That's a that's a valuable variable for keeping an opponent guessing. But without that, uh, it changes the scope of things. Right. Like even if you do throw down a camo marker, if I'm going against you, that means it's it's Uma. Like right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Like maybe Uma, or you downgraded the ninja, and that's yeah. To get yeah. really sneaky, you downgraded right. the ninja right. and deployed her in your deployment zone. Yeah. Yeah. No. That's a that's. A, you, you know, welcome to Morats, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Welcome there to the club. Sure, they have airborne deployment. They've got the the, the um, Rassiat, but otherwise, yeah, similar boat. That's uh, that's interesting, and no, no, uh, no smoke plus right. MSB two. Does actually did they even have any MSB two? Morats. Yeah, they. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah. They've got the um, Yaugats. Yeah. yeah, the the Yaogad for the one and the Nist for the other. Yeah, the Nist is what I was referring to. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. so you have that at least. Yeah, that, that I mean that does change things MSV two. Um, sure. But I mean, yeah, I guess I guess that sort of takes us into uh, the next subject, which is you know valuing profiles, right? Because uh, a lot of like as I as I've grown as an Infinity player, 
right? When I first started playing, I was like, why would anybody ever take bikes? Bikes are dumb. Sure. They just they just run out in the middle of nowhere and get shot, and they have they can't get cover, so I don't have this like magical plus three armor, and I don't you know I, I can't I can't uh, lower your BS by three because I'm hiding behind this wall. I'm just like in the open revving my engine, just like shoot me, shoot me, right? And I was like, why would everyone use this? And then I played JSA, and then I played uh, with um, Kiroshi Ryder, and I was like, oh, I get it now because she can be anywhere on the board in like three orders. Right. She can deliver a, a flamethrower template anywhere on the board in a couple of orders. She can push a button anywhere on the board after flamethrowering a bunch of stuff. Also right? true. So I remember I did an ITS mission when JSA was first released. I forget which one it was, but it was something extremely order intensive. And uh, used Kuroshi Rider extensively. And I was curious about it after the fact. And I measured out like in a straight line the distance that she traveled. It was something like nine and a half feet in the course of the game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was unmasking, right? Three, okay. uh, oh, three yeah, civilians, sure. uh, lots of sight lines to try to exploit. You know, very, very order intensive. Uh, but what other unit could do that besides a bike? Yeah, yeah, and that's they can do it in not actually in a surprisingly few amount of orders. Like the places you can get Yojimbo on just his impetuous and his irregular order <laughs> yeah, is terrifying, bonkers. Like. Yeah, John and I have had games like this where it's like he takes out Aeropius on one side of the table. I'm like, nah, I don't care. And then he like proceeds to just insert Yojimbo as far up my ass as he can possibly get it, like through the back side of the table around behind me, shooting like a guy with a contender. Like, <laughs> and even if Yojimbo never pulls the trigger or swings the sword, the ability to either get smoke somewhere where you weren't expecting yeah. it. Or to be able to run a koala through a minefield. And so suddenly you thought you had like a, sure. a well-defended quadrant that was full of mines. And then suddenly those mines are gone because he ran his koalas through there. And it opens up a vector that you thought was previously protected. Yeah. yeah I mean, positioning is a, is a resource, right? Because um, like you were saying, like having your Jimbo's toolkit in a particular section of the board and the ability to pick it up and move it late very quickly is very valuable, right? So we can think about orders being a resource, right? That's that's the most straightforward example of a resource is infinity. You start sure. with like 10 orders in a combat group, you spend them all, your turn's over, at least for that time, combat group, right? That's mm -hmm. it. Um, you can attack that order pool, right? So that's one way to deplete your opponent's resources to kill their mans, and then they have less orders to do stuff with on their following turn, right? Um, their mans are also a resource, Right. Um, so if you sure. need to push buttons, you kill all their specialists. No more specialist resources. They can't win the game. Um, so that's how you attack that resource. But positioning is is kind of a one that doesn't immediately maybe announce itself as like, hey, I'm a resource too. But it is because um, you have to spend all your other resources to develop it, and you can uh, use it to save on other resources as well. Right. So that's why mm -hmm. we pay for things like infiltration and airborne deployment. Because um, it's you don't need to spend orders on, like people are like oh zerats are dumb you're like yeah but it starts in the middle where I want to do stuff right so I'm I'm getting yeah. uh, back other resources just by this person this 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 monkey lady existing yeah no that's a, that's an interesting way to, to, to think about it um, and you can also think about it a little bit thinking thinking along the lines of like um, how that interplays with like airborne deployment and infiltration right like where you set up an airborne deployment model as a single use resource mm -hmm. in a way. Like there's my one, you know, here's my one chance to get this thing exactly where I need it, and that's um, yeah, that's just an interesting way to think about when you're building a list. Like, what resources do you have other than just your orders and your big guns? Uh, yeah. Well, I think we can look at something like your classic camo infiltrator. You know, something like a zero or a foxtrot uh, as as 
sort of being consistently valuable for a lot of the themes that we're identifying, right? You know, I think we, you talk to most players and they'll recognize that this is an inherently valuable unit. Okay, but why? Well, it's, it's infiltrates, so it's inherently order efficient by starting close to the opponent. Uh, it brings mines, which naturally forces an opponent to expend more orders in an attempt to do what they want to do and go where they want to go. Uh, just by virtue of being in a camouflage state, you're forcing your opponent to spend more orders in order to neutralize it as a threat. Um, and I think we actually see that a lot in the design space that CB has created, where that was a unit uh, or a trope for units that was popping up in a lot of armies. And then we started to see CB retreat from that in favor of creating other interesting midfield-type troopers. Uh, I feel like the Ryukin 9 or like the Conran, some of these midfielders that are relying on different gimmicks uh, stem from the fact that CB recognized just how good camo infiltrators were and wanted to try experimenting with some other useful mechanics too. Yeah, I think a lot of I think a lot of the infiltrating or for you know deep port deployments like FD2 units um, that don't have camouflage kind of get shat on <clears throat> Zerak. <clears throat> um, <laughs> when when like not spending not spending orders to get a mimetism red fury or a mimetism boarding shotgun grenades for observer wherever the hell I damn want, like that's pretty freaking good. And then if I can start using that to immediately exert pressure on my, you know, that's what it's going to do inherently, right? Like you're immediately exerting pressure on your opponent in a specific way that they need to respond. Um, right. You know, like you can't, if that Zara is wedged in somewhere, you know, somewhere with short firing lanes, like you've, you, how are you going to go deal with it? Right. What do you, what do you learn yeah. to throw into the box? You know, something like that. So, I mean, uh, I take, taking it back to go, right. You, a, a combi rifle with mimetism in the midfield, right. Is holding area just as you know uh, a Swiss Guard with multi rifle would, or like a, a you know a Daufei with HMG or something, right? Like they're like you can you can take anything you want, put it in the same position, right? Like pick any profile you want in the game, put it in that position, it's still holding that zone of control, right? Yeah. You, if you walk around the corner, assuming you know it's not facing the wrong way, you got to deal with it somehow. Um, and so you can abstract away the trooper um, to the stone again. Um, so like, you know, people tend to undervalue stuff. It's like, oh, the Zerats are bad or like kits, line Kitsotsu with a combi rifle are bad, right? But they're there and they're exerting influence. Maybe the quality of that influence is not as good, right? Like a linked Kamau MSR, which is the current gold standard in, in, in AROs is better than like an unlinked Aguasil MSR. Sure. But they're still exerting the same area of influence. Maybe the quality is different. And like you were saying, right, the Zerat boarding shotgun, you have to tuck it into a short fire lane area. So you have to utilize it differently. So this is where it starts to, uh, you expand the game of ghosts. Like there's different qualities of stones which do different things. It starts to look like more like chess, right? Like you want to position your bishop in a different way that you want to position your rook. Same general idea, right? So you, you have to you have to pay attention not only to the position and the quality, the, not just the position, but also like the, the quality and the, the tools, the toolkit that you have, right? Like especially now with um, all the stuff that's happening with N4, presumably, and all the changes to hacking rules like spotlight arrows and stuff. Now hackers are a threat to everything, right? You can't just ignore them. Yeah. Like your Ariadna is not safe anymore. Your camo is going away because... If you know, rather your mimetism is going away because I'm going to spotlight you as you walk by. Sure, sure. No, that's that's man, spotlight again. We could probably have one whole episode with just how excited we are over the spotlight changes. Yeah, like that's that is so game changing. It's, it's the running uh, meme of the episode for sure, <clears throat> or the, the show, yeah, I guess. So, yeah. So uh, so Diferation on in the chat makes a point about 
uh, non-Campbell infiltrators lose a lot of value when going second because they can actually make it easier for your opponent to go kill them. Um, and I think that's that's a fair point. If you poorly deploy a unit, your opponent is going to go up and go kill it. Um, something that, with John, when we talked on our, our episode about the internet meta um, a few weeks back, uh, Michael, you might find this interesting too, something we discovered is that in Spain and in like Europe, I guess, people over-infiltrate all the damn time. Like, it's not just great infiltrators. Yeah, it's not just great infiltrators and superior deployment. People do it all the freaking time. Um, and so that's, like, people really have to prepare for that to happen all the time. You know, like, it, it could happen anytime you face another, like, something like your fox shot boarding shock. And sure, I'll give that a whirl, because if it gets up there, you're fucked, you know? <laughs> um, and so another thought is that, kind of conversely, having the flexibility to deploy further up does not necessarily mean you should. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Right. It's, it's, it's giving you the option to have a more advantageous, more advantageous place. Which you can get, yeah. I mean, you, you can get really tactical. You can get highly tactical too with being able to deliberately telegraph to an opponent that a threat is visible. Really good example is, uh, Pauli Nikes who I play against on a regular basis he uses uh, the Zerad hacker, and he plays vanilla. And people would ask, well, why in the hell would you use that? He likes it because he relies tremendously on hacking. He usually has three or four hackers in a list, and we're talking about somebody who was top ITS very, very recently. He does the entire year. Yeah, and <laughs> the visible hacker means that uh, his opponent will rush a killer hacker, turn one, right at that visible hacker, reveal it, expose it, very frequently lose it, and suddenly he's pulled the killer hacker out of the equation. It's no longer a variable. The opponent identifies to it, goes after the threat, he removes it, and suddenly his remaining hackers are thrilled because they've dealt with the one obligatory killer hacker that his opponents are often fielding. Clearly I can't kill the hacker that's in front of me. Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's worse than a distraction carnifex, right? Because it's bait. It's it's huge bait. It's a hundred percent bait, yeah. uh, and it, it might even live as well. Yeah, exactly. Because there's a Q drone watching it. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> that is totally a Ruben thing to do, and I am glad he's in your meta. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's um, that's uh, that's some sneaky sneaky shit right there. Um, I, I guess clever. I, I want to bring it back to the idea of yeah, Sate and Go. Which is okay. this? This this Zerat hacker is a good example. Um, so you know you you put the Zerat hacker down, and your opponent doesn't have to respond to that really, right? But they right. did, and now they've invested a bunch of resources, and, and maybe they got it, maybe they didn't. Doesn't matter. Like Ruben has it already knows that it's like yeah, probably not. Like he doesn't care. It's gone. It's gone. No big deal. But now on his turn, he's got Sensei, right? He doesn't have to respond or anything the opponent's done because they've already like. Run their trotted out their killer hacker in front of a Q drone. It's dead now, but it got the the the, the Zerat, Who cares? Um, but now he has run on the board. He he can he can develop his game plan as he sees fit, as opposed to responding. And so um, I think I think that's a really important thing to to do. So for example, another another thing to do uh, is to walk Van Zant on, kill a few things, and just leave him there in suppression. Right. Your opponent doesn't have Sente because they have to deal with Van Zant. If they walk past him, they get suppressed. If they ignore him. There's still he's Van Zant, right? He's gonna kill some stuff yeah. on, on your next turn, right? So you have to respond. Um, the nice part is that you know you can uh, 
the amount of resources you might have to invest is pretty low. Uh, and I think a big part of developing as an Infinity player is to figure out when you, when you have it and when you don't. For example, like if there's a Fide or Speculo in your backfield, you might not have to deal with it. You might just bubble wrap it with some stuff, like put a couple of chain rifles near it. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to lose a few things to this. I'm okay. I've moved stuff around, so that's not a big deal for me anymore. I'll go on with my turn. And it's about balancing how much resources you give to an opponent's threat. The most yeah. stressful impersonator is the one that never acts. It's the one that yeah. sits there. Yep. Turn three, it's still sitting there, and you have no idea. It It's projecting, you know, that sphere of influence. It's projecting, uh, it, it maintains the ability to impact your strategy throughout all three turns. And we tend to think of Infinity, or many people think of Infinity, as being a very, like, strongly Alpha Strike-oriented game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have not found that to be the case, and I like to point to that uh, static impersonator as a very good example of that. Sure. I think that's going to be in, like, the big book of quotes from Michael DeLarve right there. Like, the the stressful impersonator is the one which does yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, since we're in the business of making shirts, Adam, there you go. Oh, there you go, right? Exactly. <laughs> the, yeah, uh, a great example of that is um, we, Eric um, Worth, who we should have on the show at some point. Um, I've consistently done things like put him in loss of lieutenant two turns straight, first and second turn. He wins because he just plays the objective, right? I yep. alpha strike him super hard. He leaves all these like, bait. I'm, he's probably not doing it intentionally, but he'll, he'll like leave some weakness open. I'd be like, all right, if part of the attraction for infinity me is like doing some Rube Goldberg thing and like finding some like, like hard to reach outcome. I'm like, okay, if I kill this guy, kill this guy. I can walk this like AD trooper on that shoot his lieutenant in the butt. Done. I did it. All right. I win the game. Wait, what? How come you flipped all the objectives? That's not okay. <laughs> Wait, hang on. Why is this a six zero loss for me? Right. So, you know, these, these are things you have to consider. You know, you can be terrible for two turns, but if you're amazing turn three, that's all that really matters in infinity. I mean, I, I see a lot of players who, who succeed, they utilize that philosophy and they pull a rabbit out of their, well, out of their ass on turn three. Um, despite losing the attrition game, despite losing the area denial game. Uh, and, but I can't do that. I need to play methodically. Um, but I take my hat off to them. No, that's a uh, that is a talent which which I love to to uh, to cultivate. <laughs> is yes. the yeah. It's the cool. I fucked everything up so far. <laughs> what what now? It works. You know. Yeah, I, I I recognize in myself as a player, in fact, that I tend to be a very weak closer. Right. You know, if the game is on the wire, turn three, I find that I very often lose that exchange, and so it ties into. Uh, the broader topic of tonight's discussion and that I really need to be methodical in how I deploy and how I progress, utilizing positioning and denying areas so that I don't get to the point where the game is that close. Because if I do, uh, that's that's when you lose strategic and tactical control. Right. So maybe let's uh, let's steer this a little bit towards like, okay, so how do you do this? <laughs> right. So like we can talk all day about the theory behind it, but when it comes to like actually um actually kind of moving into how do you how do you purposely position yourself to steal from john's nose well i think it i think it speaks really really well to the van zant example that you highlighted where uh you know you rob your opponent of their agency you make it so they're constantly reacting because the more orders that they're dumping into reclaiming their turn so that they can proceed with their plan uh the less they can focus on the objective and I find that that's by far the easiest way to um, mm. both both Zant and the the impersonator are actually 
like really good examples where I think a lot of newer players or people who just got excited. Like this happens to me with Van Zant all the time. I'm like, wee, pew, 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 I'm dogging now. Yeah, pew, 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 pew. Like, like just go off, blow my whole order pool, kill five things because it was the fun thing to do, right? But by not spending orders, by using those resources somewhere else, by, by using orders on other things, you actually create problems you know, going back to the, the sente that John was talking about, like you create problems that your opponent has to deal with. You have already wasted their orders. You don't need to kill the guys to waste the orders. Mm-hmm. Especially, I mean, God forbid you're playing something like Shazlasti with double speculos up in their deployment zone. Like, you have to deal with that. Or don't, you know, like you can play the ignore it game, but th- that is a that is a very um, bold decision to make if you're, especially against multiple impersonators. Um and it's something you have to face the consequences of. Like if you if you left the wrong thing to deal with it, you know, if you left something there to deal with it, and then I can walk away in two orders, right, and get away from it with through all the discovering, like then you're still SOL. Hmm. Um, so kind of knowing when not to spend it's basically knowing when not, when when to spend your orders to get position and when to not spend your orders to maintain position. Hmm. Yes. Are kind of two interesting things to think about. Because, um, man, it's like I use speculos. It's really tempting just to boarding shock on that guy because I can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, oh, it's this there. is an easy, low hanging fruit, right? So, I mean, we, you know, the, the easy things of positioning, right, are like uh, the what, right? You have the right tool mm-hmm. in the right place, right? I need to get the specialist to the button. I'm doing the right thing. Uh, range bands are a great example of this, right? Like, I want to get my HMG into the right range band. I get my comp rifle right, right range band and get him out of your good range band. Um, mm-hmm. You know, get all the all, basically get the right tool to the right place. But the the thing is, then, well, then what, right? Do I do I back off to, to protect my piece? Uh, do I not develop a piece because I'm I know that it will be good later? A great example is. Um, is is playing JSA? Uh, you bait their tag out into the path of Kitsune, and you just leave Kitsune cool. in deployment, right? So you could go hunt down their tag on your turn, right? You could reveal Kitsune, do some smoke nonsense, recamo, walk into base to base, lightsaber tag's gone, right? But that's yeah. easily six orders, right, to do all of that. Um, and uh, what if the tag walked up to Kitsune, and then you just reveal the camo token, move move behind it, and then in two orders it's done, right? And they wasted all that time. Like they did the work for you. They spent all the orders yeah. moving the tag forward because you gave it some, you know, low hanging fruit to shoot at. Yeah, it's it's. I'm actually just like I'm just kind of replaying scenarios in my head where it is really kind of fun. The idea of of not spending the order to force your opponent to spend it. Mm-hmm. Um, I can have that impersonator. You know, I can have throw away my impersonation state to boarding shotgun and kill an order, right? Right. Or I can leave my impersonator there, and if my opponent wants to deal with it, they're going to have to spend five orders to get rid of it. Yeah, and and it's it's basically like the question you should always ask yourself is like, why am I doing this? Is it advancing mm-hmm. my plan? Right? Does killing this one guy with my speculo do anything other than make me feel good? Right? And yeah. Like, I'm, I'm, you're not you're not looking for the short term dopamine hit. You're looking for like the long term win. Right. So I find that's the biggest mistake that yeah. that's frequently made in Alpha Strike is that players are picking targets on turn one and committing their entire order pool to an act that even if it succeeds has minimal consequence on the entire game. Right. And a lot of yeah, that, I, yeah, a lot of that is like threat projection, like, uh, not, uh, there's a word for it. I forgot it, but basically it's just like threat overload. Right. So if you look at, um, if you look at uh, us Ariadna, everything in there is going to, doesn't matter what it is. So you, you can sort of freak out and be like, Oh God, the scariest thing is, uh, that Marauder link. I got to go kill the Marauder link. 
and you blow up your whole turn doing it, and then the, the grunt infiltrator that you ignored roasts your whole back back zone, right? It's over. So you gotta you gotta be careful yeah. about that sort of. Yeah, and like again with USA, like going back to exactly what Michael said, like I've played plenty of times where somebody has spent you know their whole first turn successfully killing like five of my guys, like wrecking an order pool. And it's like, yeah, and then I, I still win the game because I didn't spend all my orders killing your guys. I pushed the buttons instead. Right, and that Foxtrot still walked onto the objective or yeah. whatever. Like, good work. You fucked up that grunt link. Bravo. Um, my, <laughs> I still am going to push the button. Like, you, didn't, you didn't do anything to stop me from doing that. You, you cost me some orders, but those are orders that... that you know, had I not been feeling from a place where I need to start conserving, I might have wasted them doing something anyways, something stupid anyways, like not winning the game. Mm -hmm. And you, can, I think you can think you can flip it around and say, you know, what positioning does my opponent want to achieve, right? So going back to the Foxtrot example, yeah. I want to prevent them from getting there, so I want to create a zone of influence where they can't be, so I can put down like crazy koalas, mines, whatever, right? So just keep them out of that area and exert exert pressure on them to stay away. And then you also have to think about like, okay, well, how do they develop their position? How many orders is it going to take this camel marker, which is likely to be a Foxtrot, to get into base to base with this objective? And how do, like you two maybe including pushing the button yeah. right so as long as they've got two orders left on the table they can do it and win the game yeah so murdering the whole backline doesn't get you anything so you gotta you always gotta ask why how does it advance your plan how does it disrupt the enemy is it an efficient use of your orders and your positioning right because every like you can you can throw your your camel infiltrating badass into their deployment zone or your speculator whatever murder all the things and you're expending that position to get a short-term gain, right? You're expending that positional resource because now if you didn't do that, it was just there holding that area and like occupying space in your opponent's head, right? Like Michael said earlier, there's like, you're, you're a human being, you know, you have decision fatigue eventually. Maybe you're playing the fifth game of like a very long tournament. You're drunk maybe, right? So anything that occupies headspace is helping, right? You, like in your opponent's head. No, yeah, that's, so thinking also about how um, other positional advantages that people give up early, um, I think it happens all of the frickin' time with hidden deployment and airborne deployment, mm -hmm. right? Like, these are, these are probably two of, uh, like, as far as, like, positioning goes, probably the two most potent things in the game, right? Like, I can be wherever I want, whenever I want to be there. Why do I always want to be there turn one? And people think about, like, well, I don't want to lose the orders over, you know, over the next two turns of the game, right? Like, that's potentially two orders lost, if you show up on the third turn, but it's also like, I've spent more than two orders keeping units alive before. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. this is, this is, this is an important specialist that can drop on the objective turn three. Like I will spend multiple orders every turn if necessary to keep that thing alive. Like that's eating up way more orders than just like ignoring that I've lost two orders in the first two turns of the game. And then boom, here's my tiger soldier, you know, right next to the paramedic, right next to the objective. I push the button. I win the game. GG. Like, I think that intangible is is so valuable. Like I, I as a long time player of both Neo Terra and Varuna, I actually think that Neo Terra is a more potent defensive force because I rate the Hexa Sniper as an unknown quantity higher yeah. than the visible Kamau Link, and I've won many more games as a result of a critical, not not a critical hit, but a crucial. Uh, hidden deployment reveal, double action ammo at a, at a valuable time, as opposed to the highly visible threat of projecting force with the Kamau. Um, and that's actually one reason why I 
think that Varuna will start to slide downward in competitive ranking as player IQ increases because if you are creating the problem for your opponent to solve, they will find a way to do it. Whereas something like a hidden deployment trooper or an airborne deployment trooper uh, is an unknown quantity. They can't challenge it and they can't contest it until you choose to reveal it. Yeah, that's actually that's actually really interesting because you know you talk about the Kamau. It is such a static thing. Everybody knows what a Kamau does. It's going to do that thing. Like anybody anybody worth their salt at this point in time knows. Okay, if I deal with Kamau, here's what I'm going to do. Like I'm either going to ignore it, which is a completely viable option on 90% of the tables out there, right? Like cool, fuck it. I'm just going to walk around it and still push the buttons to win the game. Like or I'm going to do something funny like, oh, that's your only ARO piece? Here's Drakios. He's, you know, he's hilarious. <laughs> You're going to be friends. Um, like, there's, everybody has a plan for it now. You can't, you know, your plan for the Hexa Sniper is move and look at your opponent and be like, no, okay, shit, okay. Uh, move? Okay, nope, so right. what? You know, it's the same thing, like, yeah. again, going back to, like, I like Shasvazi because I like trolling people when I play games. Like, the, the fact that I can have double knockover missile launchers, yeah. Act, oh absolutely like i love i love after reveal the one casually dropping like man i'm just loving shaz Vasti. i can't believe they get two noctifers you know like just <laughs> yeah you would you would <laughs> it's 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 maybe only slightly worse than my like van zant t-shirt that i wear when i'm playing us Ariadna. all right and, and not bringing him yeah you know? but like it's embarrassing my opponent to be like Oh fuck! Oh Vans! Oh Vans Ant! Oh, I better turn all these guys around. Make sure I'm covering all. The, you know, you're just adding all this stress. You're like, and then you know, occasionally go over to their side of the board and looking at their deployment zone. Be like, can that guy see over here? Nope. Okay, cool. Let me go back to my side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I ever do or condone any of this non-sportsman like <laughs> bullshit. Um, yeah, I mean, t- uh, hidden camo is an excellent example. Uh, uh, sorry, hidden deployment snipers are an excellent example of uh, defensive stuff, right? So you can get that quote-unquote gotcha moment with a Noctifer missile launcher or something like that. Uh, but it also works in the attack. So I had a, um, I had a game against Jordan. He was playing Caledonia, and he had bubble. He was playing the Highlander Gray Volunteer Link, right? The APHMG Gray bunch of volunteers. And then he had um, a backup core link, because you can do that in Caledonia, with Wallace and a pile of Galwegians, right, in group two. Um, And the Galwegians were just going to run out into the wild and do whatever they were going to do. And I was playing JSA. I was uh, not playing very well that day. And I threw, I was either Oni Wavin or Katsuni, I forget, at Wallace, and I died to the Galwegian wall. What I should have done was those Galwegians are going to move on their own, whether they like it or not, unless he reforms the link, right? So they're going to leave Wallace's side, and he's just going to be there by himself. And the Oni Wabon is more than capable of taking out Wallace on his own. Yeah. So if you wait a turn or two and let the Galwegians pass the Oni Wabon, which they probably will, because I mean they're an excellent they're an uh, excellent offensive tool for for Caledonia. Like if you if you let them come in and and you meet grinder them somewhere else, then you can just sneak an Oni Wabon through the gap. They leave. so it works it works in, in the attack as well. But you also it's all about pacing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's interesting. Sorry, my, my head is, is back stuck again on airborne deployment being like, I can't wait to use that Tiger Soldier sniper. Like, what's better than a, a BS-13 mimetism sniper is a BS-13 mimetism sniper wherever I damn well please. Well, I mean, well, I, something I, I, uh, something I tell new players a lot is that uh, okay. as they come to terms with the unknown quantity of infinity, the variables, um, I tell them the usually the longer that they can keep 
those units in reserve off the table, the more potent the impact can be because, you know, obviously turn one, you're facing your opponent's tightest defensive deployment. They've deployed with defense in mind. They have maximum area denial, maximum coverage of bodies on the table. And even though they may not have had an opportunity to advance out of their DZ, all of their resources are intact. And presumably they've formulated a strong plan for defending themselves. But as the game evolves and as combat and attrition and casualties and bad dice rolls stack up, windows start to open and uh, those hidden deployment units, those airborne units, their stock goes up tremendously uh, because your opponent is going to start yielding up advantages that they can uh, exploit to more devastating effect. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, there's just so much. <laughs> what what is it? Yeah, no, like, there's not a whole lot to add to that. Like, you, that is it. Do that yeah, thing. Pretty much. Like, you'll get so much more out of out of those pieces um with just a little more thought all the people all of you guys listening right now you're you're going to be better players tomorrow and going back to the brain drain idea too it's yeah. a relief when the impersonator reveals turn one it's a relief oh, when yeah. Jinobu Kitsune oh, yeah. like makes her assassination run on turn one what's stressful is when you think those units are still out there you see that marker you know that hidden deployment unit is lurking and it's turn three and you're trying to wrap the game up but you know that you haven't accounted for a very dangerous threat well, yeah, and you can you can do so much more meaningful work on the third turn, you know. Like there, you, you, every now you bring in like an AD guy on turn one, like um, oh my god, what's his face? My favorite guy in Steel Phalanx. Um, bring him in on turn one. Eudorus. Uh, no, Eudorus. Um, Eudorus. Is it no. Eudorus? No, it's not Eudorus. Which one? The airborne deployment guy, the Ectromai. Um Oh. Um... He's a he's an NWI Ectromai with a Mark Twelve and assault pistol, nano pulsers, NWI like murders the hell out of everything and it's so much fun to like blow your load on him turn one right like woo murder 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 but like the he's last always underappreciated right yeah, big he's, time. he's amazing but the the lasting impact that has in the game is a lot less if we're playing supplies like he didn't contribute in any meaningful way towards getting one of these boxes and coming home with it diomedes like, he went down there, hmm? diomedes diomedes thank, thank you. you joe too many names to remember um yeah but having just a just a, like an extra money assault hacker, like cool game you have here. All right, he's gonna drop down, murder that guy with the box. Now I have a box. The end. Mm -hmm. Like right. that's that's gonna have a lot more effect on the game than killing three or four orders turn one with uh, um, Diomedes and then watching get you know murdered in return. Yeah, Joe brings up another great point. Uh, another trick that he likes with airborne or hidden deployment is to deploy visible troops mostly on one side of your deployment, and then when your opponent expands into the space you left them, you can have your dude pop out and kill the enemies that are lined up. Right. Oh, so, okay. like, like a pincher. Right. Yeah. So you're, you're basically you're you're basically using positioning again, right? You're saying I'm strong here, right? You yeah. can fill. You can take up this space, and as a result of that, you're spreading yourself out, right? And you're degrading that very careful castle you set up, like Michael was saying. And then you just drop in a tiger soldier or something, and then it's game over. Yeah, you're you're tele you're totally telegraphing a weak flank, mm -hmm. and then your opponent's like, "I'm gonna go send someone nasty up there," and then you pop in behind them and, and make them really sad. Clever, I like it. So let's think. Are there um, also one other thing we kind of really didn't even didn't even begin to talk on is kind of um, like the doing things in the right order, right, yeah. and how that how that plays to the efficiency of, of the way you, of, of your actual position on the table. Um, 
I mean, some easy way to talk about that also could be like the the amount of orders it takes to to exert control over an area, right? To to advance your position, um, and to advance your uh, um, yeah, to advance your position. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> uh, that's why we do this live, unedited. Everyone can see hear that. Yep. Little. Uh, that's little not leaving. Bit. I'm not doing any editing on the audio. It's in there forever. I know, right? I'll need. Uh, but by doing things out of order. You know, it's going to cost you way more orders to exert that, right? And kind of the, the goal is to to do this in as few as possible. Um, so I think one of the things interesting is like breaking, you know, so breaking that back down um, into what is the right order to do things. And you know, like broadly speaking, it's you know whatever whatever way gets you there, the with the least uh, least number of orders. But you can also use some of these invisible threats to advance those with spending fewer orders, right? So instead of just using your airborne deployment or your your uh, hidden deployment models as like surprise attack pieces. They also are surprise positions that you control. I it's think not... uh, uh, just just thinking about uh, applying the right tool for the right role, or perhaps more accurately, using a tool that you have for the right role as as it sort of applies to the game's imperatives. Um, thinking about uh, a game I actually play. It was actually a. a the most recent Rose City raid. Uh, I went four and one, and the game that I lost was uh, against uh, OSS, and my opponent had a really, really simple plan of gradually revealing uh, a couple of dossiers in Dart. He would just send one just right up in front of my deployment zone and then park it there in suppressive fire, and I thought to myself, oh, it doesn't seem so bad. I can probably outshoot these guys. But what impressed me was that it was not a de- an aggressive Rambo run. It was really, really light on order expenditure for him. Maybe three orders in order to position these guys and get it in a suppressive fire. But then he was leveraging the profile in order to um, create the biggest possible order drain for me. Because an NWI, TO camo, high ballistic skill, suppressive fire user... Uh, costs a lot of orders to dislodge, even for Pano. Sure. Um, and he was totally calm about it, made no aggressive attempts at coming into my deployment zone to actually try and Rambo, which is order-consuming, and could potentially run into my own defense. He would stop outside a jammer range. I was playing Varuna. Stayed well away from my command MSV2. A few orders, but then I was putting seven, eight orders into these guys to try and dislodge them every round. And it was a very atypical use of what we would normally think of as a fairly pricey unit. Mm-hmm. But he was paying, you know, what is it, high 30s, low 40s to potentially drain almost an entire order pool's worth of uh, my resources. Um, and I hadn't seen them used in quite that capacity, that methodically, uh, but it stuck with me. Probably because I lost as well, and I remember that. <laughs> but um, but it was it, it was great because he didn't try to overdo it. He saw the tactical situation, realized that he needed to drain orders to prevent me from attacking aggressively in my normal pano way, and he quietly did the mission while feeding his guys into the meat grinder. Um, and I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. I, I think I think that's a problem that a lot of... Um, like, that's a trap that a lot of new players fall into, is, is they see two options, right? They're like, okay, well... There's this guy contesting a fire lane. I have a bigger gun. I got more bursts. Even if, like, let's ignore suppressive fire for a moment. Um, I can just shoot them, and then I can have complete impunity over the board. I just run over everything because this sniper is not watching anything anymore. The other option is I spend, so let's say it takes you an order to move into position, another order to shoot, and you're like, okay, great. 
then I can do whatever I want for the rest of the turn. Or you could spend maybe like three or four orders throwing smoke or cautious moving and actually getting to the objective, right? Um, so which one is better? And a lot of mm-hmm. players are like, well, I mean, I should definitely shoot the other guy, right? Because that accomplishes lots of things. The, the threat is gone. Let, let me, let's say I have a shotgun or something, right? Just a really straw man this. The threat is gone forever. I don't have to deal with it anymore. I've denied the opponent a key tool. I've denied them an order in their resource pool, right? So this sounds great. I'm stacking up all these things. But I could just have the saddest dice ever and spend Ooh. like the next three orders, four orders, five orders doing this, throwing my HMG at this one sniper who can't fail an arm, arm roll and is passing, you know, whip rolls to stay, stay standing the whole time, right? And now I'm eight orders into this. I finally kill the thing. And I'm like, I can't go push the button anymore because I've got one order left in my pool. Yep. Whereas if I had done the safe play, which is more consistent because maybe I only have to make one smoke roll, which is unopposed, right? And then just jet across the gap. I can do it reliably in what seems like more orders, right? But in reality, sure. it may it may be significantly worse if you start shooting. Yeah, I've had unlinked grunt snipers just sitting there like, you know, it's it's armor three, it's armor six in cover. Mm-hmm. Like, they'll, they'll be a pain in the ass to kill sometimes. Like, sometimes in... It costs me nothing to put there, and you're just sitting there plucking away orders. At it. If it takes you four orders to kill a grunt sniper, I am elated. You know, <laughs> like if it takes if it takes really like once I get to two, I start. I'm I'm pretty pretty stoked. Like it's just about re- you know you're reducing your opponent's efficiency. Um, and you a lot of these a lot of these cheap snipers and it partially it's partially because things like moderator snipers pay like one and a half swick for a multi, right? But like. In uh, in Ariadna and in Hakazlan, where you get these like dirt cheap, just a sniper rifle, like the amount of threat that that can exert over an area for how cheap they are, um, is can be crazy. <clears throat> for sure. So yeah, no, this has been. I really like this topic. It's it's interesting because it's it's so meta, and it, to really do to really be successful at it, a lot of times you're kind of doing things in ways that are counter counterintuitive for infinity. Um, yeah. Which is funny because I also feel like these things, which are counterintuitive for Infinity, are like 100% how you play Blood Bowl. You know, like, you don't activate the guy because he's currently standing in the right spot to not let them run through. You know, and in Blood Bowl, you get smacked so hard for making the wrong decision. Oh um, God, I don't know, yeah. do you ever if you play Blood Bowl? I've not. Oh my God! Like the, the the short of it is, if you do anything wrong in your turn, your turn is over. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. If, if the first guy you activate was was the guy you probably shouldn't have activated and he goes and throws a, a shitty block and you go down, congratulations, that was your turn. The other 10 of your guys don't activate. Yeah. Your opponent gets down. Effectively, what, the way to think about it is if you're playing Infinity, the first order you spend, the face-to-face roll does not go your way. It's your opponent's turn now. Yeah. Rough. So, um, so uh, yeah, uh, Diforation in the chat, and John and I both kind of said the same thing when we started talking about Blood Bowl a few episodes ago. It was like, playing Blood Bowl made me a, a much better Infinity player. Um, Interesting. Yeah, because I, it's, so Blood Bowl is just a, it's just a positioning game. That's all it is. It's positioning in, in horrible, scary dice, right? So, and then, <laughs> like, you know, in Infinity, you can be like, I can eat an arrow. You can't eat an arrow in, in Blood Bowl. You, you can't roll a bad a, a bad uh, roll in Blood Bowl and expect to continue your turn. Um, so it's really forced me as a player to get really critical about how important is it that I activate this guy. 
right? How important is it that I even change his position? Um, is he actually doing plenty of work right there? And, you know, we do that actually all the time in Infinity, right? Like, you leave the order, you leave the cheerleader where he is, you leave the arrow piece where he is, they're fine. Um, spend your pieces, spend your orders and your attack pieces. Um, but just the fact that every turn is just a nightmare of what is the correct order to do this in um, really makes you a lot more of a, uh, a critical Infinity player. I can definitely relate to that from my War Machine Hordes days. Certainly, sure. that that order of operations, uh, you know, activating everything in the proper sequence to create the right synergy chain for whatever, yeah. you know, high probability scenario you're creating for yourself. Um, but I also found it to be, frankly, not that enjoyable. I said that, uh, yeah, War Machine Hordes was always the tabletop game I played where I was most relieved when the game was over. Yeah, I. I tried hard to like warm awards. I started and stopped several armies. I had basically everything for or for double of everything for convergence for a long time. Like I fought hard to like that game and I freaking hated it. Like yeah. I hate every minute of it. I never played a game was like, man, that was so much fun. Let's play another. Do we have time? Like, no. Mm, cool. I, well, that was over. The exact same way. And I played it competitively for a while. Uh, and I, I like too that infinity, of course, because of the order system, gives you a feeling of never being down and out where the game is concerned. You know, we we touched earlier upon, uh, you know, that that loss in round three because your opponent, even though they were on the ropes, managed to play to the objective well. Uh, but I think it also speaks a lot to what we're describing right now with. Um, you know, expanding your sphere of influence and denying area because infinity is not a game of hard counters. I see people apply the term hard counter incorrectly in infinity and infinity has very, very few hard counters. Infinity is a game of soft mechanics, right? It's a, it's a game where you are dealing with fairly narrow, like margins of success where the probability is concerned. Um, but you're leaning heavily into creating that. I mean, if you look at the suppressive fire uh, mechanic, for example, basically with a zero range band and minus three, what you're basically doing is you are creating equal odds with your opponent when they're firing a combi rifle, you know, yeah. as the base litmus. Um, but I think that speaks really well to the entire design philosophy uh, that Infinity was created around, where all you're trying to do via ARO is balance the odds for yourself and for your opponent. And I think that that brings something really, really valuable to the idea of denying area, the idea of projecting control and positioning. Right. It's it's fun. I mean, it's it's fun and also maddening um, to go back sometimes and use like the, the Infinity Dice Calculator to kind of check out the odds. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like a lot of good odds in this game, like a lot of shots that you take all all the time you have like a 45% chance of success. Right. And then there's like a, and then there's like a 30% chance of failure. And then whatever the leftover is chance of success for your opponent. Like it's not that good. It's not like I'm going to shoot that guy and kill him. It's going to only take me one order. Well, not a significant amount of time. It's going to take more than that. Unless you've got a big gun. I want to, I want to touch on that real quick. So uh, I'm going to pull up, I'm going to pull up uh, this picture here. So this, this is a dice odds calculator. Um, the, the details aren't important, but basically this is me shooting at something. Uh, and basically the 41.64 here is me doing a wound. 
the 51.29 is nothing happening, right? So one of us gets shot or both of us miss. And if we get shot, we pass the arm roll, so nothing happens. And then this 7.08 is uh, is the the ARO shot hitting my guy and straight up killing him, right? So that's what this mm-hmm. looks like. Um, this is my success here, this 41.64. This 51 is actually my opponent's success as well as the 7. Point. So his margin for yeah. success is actually... 58%. Not right, because their success 7%. isn't just their success isn't just killing you. Their success is also wasting your your exactly. orders. Yeah. Well, that's why the Kamau sniper is so maddening, not because the Kamau sniper is actively killing your guys, but because for the first time there's an ARO mechanic that doesn't simply roll over and die to an HMG. If you right. took previous before the Kamau, you put a decent linked HMG or whatever against any ARO you know, the probability was so overwhelming, the arrow might it might as well not even be there. You know, you have to be very calculating with what you're attempting for that arrow to do, because if you're just lining it up against an HMG, you're probably going to lose. And when the Kamau sniper did more to bring the odds in line with one another, active turn and reactive turn, mm-hmm. everybody had a meltdown, because right. we hadn't seen that before. And um, kind of a differentiation talks again, talking about how like cheap stuff is amazing for AROs. Jack right? Panzer takes, fast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you've <laughs> Sorry. had you know, like between like your Panzerfausts emitters and adhesive, like oh. it's awful. But um but the, these cheap ARO pieces, if I can throw a moderator out there, right? And you takes two two orders to kill that moderator, I'm stoked. Like if anything takes sure. two orders, yeah. sometimes like you know, again, you're you're shifting those odds, and the moderator is clearly not as good in the arrow as a Kamau sniper, right? Like, that's going to happen. But I don't need to waste as many orders to make that moderator worth its points. Where the the Kamau sniper, I need you. You better be wasting half an order pool on that thing to take it down, um, at least. You know, if somebody takes if somebody takes down a your Kamau sniper in the first half of their order pool of their first order pool, you're pissed. You know, like. Well, crap! There goes my main gambit. I don't know what the rest of my army does now. Um, <laughs> I better, I better learn how to play pan out. Like it's, it's, yeah. Those kinds of things are pretty. It's just another interesting thing to think about. Like you don't need these extremely powerful, expensive arrow pieces. I'll never say no to a Q drone, but um, it's really the, you know how efficiently they waste orders. Um, right. I mean, what you do need is defense and depth. Right, so that yeah. goes back to that goes back to positioning. Um, so yeah, I mean the Kamau sniper is your is your outermost wall of defense. It reaches out the farthest. It touches the most things, right? But behind it, you need things like Zulu Cobra jammers. You need things like uh, short ranged um, helots, right? Protecting the juicier bits of your army. So as you get closer, right? There's more stuff that's attacking you. There's more things that like projecting threat, like jammers and stuff. So. Um, you, you never want to just like have one thing up and then it just goes away and then they have free run of the board. And, and this goes for, for even null deployment, right? So, you know, null deployment again, for those of you who don't know is you basically don't leave anything out to arrow, uh, especially at long range. Um, but you don't want to just seed control of the board entirely because then they can just run something up the board and start shooting stuff, and that's bad too. So you have to create a defensive depth, like maybe you put a chain rifle watching this corner, maybe you wa- you put a combat rifle or something in the 16-inch range band watching like uh, this other area. So um, you you want to drain orders from them as efficiently as possible with the understanding that the things you leave out are going to die, 
So how do you drain orders from them after the the threat? Like the like, what happens if your command dies with the first shot? Is that all you've got? Is that the only thing yeah. that you set up your defense for? Right. Hopefully not. Um, so John, you brought up that battle report for a quick second. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, sure. I'll I'll be relatively quick, so as so not to, yeah. not to go too on too long. But basically, this a, is a this is a battle report. Sorry. Yeah, it was it was, it was, a, it was just a really interesting game where. Um, yeah, you're positioning one. <laughs> yeah, so so this is a game uh, from Best of the Pacific Northwest 2020 before the whole COVID thing happened. Um, admittedly, this is a bit of an odd situation. Uh, this is the tournament that I took a 400-point tactical window vanilla Ariadna list with no burst four weapons except for assault pistols. So it's weird. The list choices are weird. Let's start there. Um, I won't talk about that. If you're interested in my reasoning for what I, why I chose what I chose and how the list performed, you can go check out our list building episode and go into all the gory details. What I do want to talk about is positioning. So this is the this is the board we were playing, right? So um, so just to to talk about it a little bit, there's kind of a bigger let's see, there's a bigger like left or right corridor. Yeah. Like. So this this is a kind of a weak fishbowl, right? I like to yeah. characterize it as. Yeah. So um, what a fishbowl is. Uh, is basically there's a big area of space, open area in the middle of the board, right? Which is mm-hmm. the fishbowl. And then everything around, like the, the perimeter of the board has a bunch of tall buildings with basically no cover uh, between it and the center of the table. So you can like ring the whole thing with snipers or even combi rifles or whatever. And anything sure. that walks through the center just gets shot to shit and you're sad. Nasty. So this is a weak oh, fishbowl. Yeah. Uh, you can sort of see like, yeah, this is massive central corridor. You can just like, like there's, there's no place safe to hide. Uh, so we were playing... Um, uh, was it was a capture and protect the CTF one? Yeah, capture and protect. Yeah. Right. So there's my beacon. There's uh, Burl. I played Burl Pettibon. There's his beacon, and they're basically like in the open, right? Yeah. There's not really they're, any good way of like sneaking up to either one, really. Well, they're both either end of that long corridor. They're either one of the long corridor, but there's so many other corridors, right? There's this corridor, like watching. Right, so I could put something on this corner and watch this thing. He can do the same, uh, you know, to his. Yeah, like, you can hide something up here and watch from this angle. I cannot remove an arrow piece on this box for my deployment zone, right? Okay. I can't. So I have to like get up there and deal with it just to get to his stupid box, right? So it's it's a bit of a pain in the butt, really. So looking at this table, what I decided to do is like, okay, I'm playing vanilla Ar- Ariadna. He's playing vanilla Yujing. Um, he chose to play a 400 point limited insertion list because he. Oh. wanted to try some crazy stuff, which is totally reasonable. So there's two Yanho in this, his list. Um, but ah. basically, um, <laughs> he went with a beefcake list. So basically on the first turn, let's look at the list real quick. Here's mine, right? So I've got a basically even split, 8-7. Yeah. Uh, a bunch of like useful stuff. So Shasser mine layers are my, my area control, right? Um, I've got some more area control in the form of tractor moles, right? So I love the yeah, air again. Um, people think I'm crazy, but I think it's really good, especially for this mission where that 16-inch rain band is relevant because you, you, if you're going to go after my uh, my beacon thing, I'm just going to light you up and I'm going to be in 16 because <laughs> it's in my deployment yeah, zone. I mean, I've taken four. It's pretty hilarious and out of tech. But anyway, so that's that's basically the core of the list. The rest of the stuff is good stuff, Ariadna. Go out and do things, right? Um, this is his list. So Sunze, lieutenant, who is just an absolute yeah. asshole. Super hard to deal with. Huge pain in the butt. Right? Uh, and then this the, this is his board control package. His board control package is Yanho, right? 
He's got the neurosynetics yeah. missile launcher guy. He's got the hyper-rapid magnetic cannon guy, which is basically like, if you leave anything out for me to shoot at, it's gone. If you move around and you're in a bad range band for you, it's gone, right? I, I, I can't, Ariadne is going to not survive, you know, getting two missiles. To the, uh, and then he's, he's got the, he's got Major Luna as well. And then he's got a bunch of other stuff to do, to go and do. Um, so this is how we ended up deploying, right? So you can sort of see he left out both Yanho to contest that major fire lane in the center. Sure. And he was like, and Luna as well. So he's got two Yanho and Luna watching this whole center area. There's really no way I can attack in, in a fair yeah. fight, yeah. right? So basically, I when I looked at this, my my uh, thought was I could over over infiltrate Uxia, right? So Uxia is actually on on the center on my side of the center line. It's kind of hard to see here, but she's on my side yeah. of the center line. I did not over infiltrate for two reasons. One because what would I do with her, right? So why, the question of why again, am I going to go on a, 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 a kill run with, with Oxia on my first turn? I mean, no. What would that really yeah. accomplish for me, right? She, she, she's part of my winning strategy, which is to smoke up the objective to, because I noticed he doesn't have any MSV2 on the table, so smoke is relevant. I can throw smoke on the objective, grab it, and run away. Right? That's how I win the game. I don't care about killing his stuff. I just want to win the game by stealing the objective running away. So uh, I put her there because she's relatively close. Right, There's an easy access path. Drop smoke, run. This building shields me from some of the Yanho, assuming they don't move. And I throw another smoke, and then I'm there. So that's maybe like two like two to four orders, depending on how things go and where the Yanho are. Right, So she's right there. And the other thing is I don't want to telegraph that I have Oxia. And this could be sure. literally okay. any camo thing in Ariadna, which is like a bajillion different things, which do all kinds of nonsense. Right. It could be just about anything. So on my side of the table, you can see that I've basically uh, done what, what I would say is an old deployment. The Ratnik is not left out to arrow at all. He's here watching yeah. this table edge to table edge thing in case there's any like Tiger Soldier nonsense that I'm not ready for. Right, so he's yep. there watching this side, and then I've got chasseurs and urigans and mines and all oh. this other crap, just like covering my objective. So I I, I feel very confident, okay. and I and the other nice thing is I have enough things advance like Pavel and the scout and Uxia, and I can get this very fast. Again, going back to how bikes are good, right? Vestrella can mm -hmm. respond quickly because I can run in and grab the thing with the canine who's six, uh, the antipode who's six six, right? So I I feel very confident that I don't have to break up my defensive castle. Right. I have, I'm very confident in my, my positioning. I know uh, why everything is there, what it's doing, and I don't need to move it. I have other advanced yeah. elements in the field that I paid for right, to get that positional advantage um, to win me the game. So basically what ends up happening is uh, I, um, I go first because I, I don't really know why. Uh, I just ended up happening that way. <laughs> and then Burl looked at this and he was like, well, your deployment zone sucks, so I'm going to give that to you. But forgetting that I was playing vanilla and that didn't really matter to me what deployment zone I got because most of the stuff's not going to start there anyway. Um, so this is his deployment, right? And you can sort of see that he left the Yanho out and he's got a... He's, sure. he, sorry? No, I'm just... Okay, yeah, so he's, this... he's deployed on this along this road axis, right? So this road axis shaped the, his entire deployment. He's very strong on his left. He's got a Kanran, a Hulang, and a Guilang basically blocking this advancement path, protecting Sunze, yep. right, who's his lieutenant. And then the rest of the right side is very open, but he's exerted soft pressure in here by putting this missile launcher in this HRMC. So yep. he's basically made it effectively impossible for me to advance easily, right? If I advance on his left, my right, I have to deal with all these like close-in fighter specialists, right? His Hulang uh, has a flamethrower, his Kanran has a chain colt, and the Guilang is an assault hacker. Um, which can do nothing against Ariadna, but would be relevant against other things. Um, 
And on the right, I had to sh deal with the stupid missile launcher. So what yep. I ended up doing was I was like, well, I'm going to try to bait him out. I, I, I send okay. in, I, I, I sort of like decide, uh, well, okay, let me take a step back. Um, this, this was absolutely going to be a game of positioning and also a game of timing. Uh, it doesn't matter to me that I get the objective on the first turn. That's not relevant to me. The objective can't run away and move. It's always going to be there, unlike uh, some HVT missions where you, the enemy can pick up the HVT and run away with it. So I know I can go for a turn three score, and that will be acceptable. So the thing, my priority list for the game to have a plan, right, is develop my position to support my advanced units as I move forward, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Retain my positional advantage in my deployment zone, protecting my my beacon, uh, which okay. is... I, like I said earlier, I don't have to move half yeah. of my units. I can use them to power other things. Um, and then develop everything to the point where I can at some point run in and grab the objective on. So part of so what I decided to do was start probing. I, I don't want to commit to anything. I want a very soft attack pressure. I don't really want to do anything crazy. I'm not going to commit to anything on my first turn. So what I decide is, um, well, the first thing I'm going to do is try for the easy kill. So I, I start off by uh, throwing Vasily at the Yanho HRMC. I'm out of 32, I think. Um, mm -hmm. I take the shot. These are reasonably good odds. It's a T2 sniper, so if I land it, the Yanho's out of the game, effectively, right? And that's sure. good for me. I don't have to deal with it anymore. I, spend, I, spend, I think I spent his lieutenant order to do it. Um, and uh, didn't work out. I stop, right? I don't need to expend any more resources on this. I tried it. Didn't work. I'm like, okay, well, let's move on with things. What I decided to do is I decided to start pressuring his uh, his strong left my, uh, with my dynamo, and I'm trying to bait out his forces. There's a Canren here, which has a bunch of uh, hollow uh, echoes, and I really would like to know which one is which so I can get my scout in position to drop an emailer to cover his... Um, to cover his uh, 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 hulang, right? Because that would, that, that would basically, going back to the thing we said earlier, which is always we want to be in a position where the opponent is making bad decisions and uh, spending their resources to do what you want, right? So if I put an email or down covering the hulang, I'm creating a don't go here hulang zone. And also, if you want to deal with it, you have to spend your orders, right? So I'm, re I'm, I'm retaining Sente. Um, so he uh, very cleverly decides not to do anything. Uh, he I, I fight the goop the Guilang, because I discover it, right? Um, but but that's it. The Canren, the which the real one is here, it doesn't really do anything, which is good for Burl. So, um, then I decide, okay, I do need to get rid of that Yanho. Uh, thankfully, I have the right tool. I get the all-powerful Yotnik into position and gun it down out of cover. Way to go, Pavel. Uh, and then mm -hmm. uh, this is where uh, I, I, I decide, based on the information that Burl has presented, that this was probably not the real... Canran, and it's probably the one hiding behind the box over here. So I'm like, okay, it's safe sure. to drop the emailer. I'm going to walk the scout out. And it turns out that that was indeed the real Canran. And I just got lucky oh. and passed the arm roll against the against the chain cold. And now there's an emailer covering. So very good for mm -hmm. me. Uh, but now that I've baited him out, right, this goes back to baiting out like hidden deployment things, which Hollow Echo is kind of like a weak hidden deployment. You know generally where it is, but not exactly where it is. Um, yeah. I've baited it out. I, I try to take it out with, um, what's his face, Caden, uh, and that fails horribly, you know, dice or dice. Um, <laughs> and then here's where I do the, the you have an email uh, covering you, I force bad decisions, I make him dodge and he passes. Okay, so um, now, now, wow, wow. yeah, now, yeah, now yeah. it's, uh, now it's Burl's turn, and he's presented with the problem of like, okay, 
I really haven't advanced anything. I've taken I've taken out one of his main attack pieces. His main attack piece that he's relying on is the Hulang. Uh, sorry, the Yanho HRMC. All that he's got left are some mid-range fighters like um, Lei Gong. Uh, so you can't discount Sun Zhe in anything because he's gross. Uh, and then of course yeah. the Hulang, right? So these guys are are good at fighting in mid to short range, but not very good at fighting long range. So I've at least delayed him a little bit, right? That was why I prioritized that. It was like, okay, take out his main gunfighter. That gives me less things to worry about later. Uh, and then this is my Stralox ambush camo here, just like being a dick, pretending to be some like a tank <laughs> hunter or something. Um, so uh, he he's like, all right, well I need. He feels that he needs to advance, uh, and I I'm not really sure he knew why. I mean, I, obviously he's not here. I don't know what he was going through his head. We didn't really get a chance to talk after the game. But um, in the absence of a better plan, sometimes just moving forward is good because that gets everything forward and that gets you closer to your objective. So in the absence of you know a well thought out plan uh, where you where you where you actually have like a bunch of stuff in sequence, it seems reasonable, right? So he starts pushing things forward and he needs to remove an advanced threat. Again, this is him not having Sente and having to respond to Pavel here. Yeah. I actually recamoed Pavel. Right, so this is even more drain on his resources. So he sends in the Zencha, shotguns Pavel. Uh, I think I, Pavel, like, and then um, I discover it with uh, with the uh, Urigen, and then I drop a mine with Pavel just to further drain orders. He passes the he passes against the mine, which is really annoying. Uh, and then um, he keeps pushing stuff forward, uh, you know. And it takes him a lot of orders because he's actually doing things like coordinated discovers against the Sherlock's ambush camo, um, trying to really be safe, uh, which. Probably isn't necessary with with Sunze. Uh, that's if, if that's a good bait piece for me. If I don't shoot at it, it's probably not a real thing, or I'm being very cagey, and you're still getting to advance your position. So it seems reasonable to just push Sunze forward, and that's relatively low risk. And he's got total immunity, so even if I shoot you with an auto cannon, as long as you end out of line of fire, you're fine. Um, so then you know there's some like midfield skirmishing, not terribly relevant. Um, and then uh, at this point. The tool that uh, that he chooses to use to take out my dynamo, which was sitting here parked, uh, helping defend the scout. The scout is not on the roof; it's inside this. Is Lei Gong, he, which he swings around uh, to behind this, uh, I don't know, widget thing to shoot at it. And this is outside of 24, and it's a little sad. So I just cover it with some smoke, right? So he's he feels that it's not safe to advance through here because I've got some stuff that can drop mines and that will cause further trouble. So his lowest energy path, he feels, to take out these tools is to come around here and take advantage of this longer fire lane where I don't have many things except for the Yotnik, which he can deny by not entering line of fire and taking out this dynamo. Um, but what this means is by doing this, he's actually pushed all his stuff forward, right? So his Yanho used to be here, it is now behind It's now behind this car. So that that's good for me for several mm -hmm. reasons. One, because now, it's a clear flank that I can get. He feels safe because um, because the Yanho, uh, sorry, his, his Zencha took out Pavel. So the tool that he thought I had over there is gone now. So he feels safe. He feels like he can do this. He feels like this flank is protected, right? So he pushes everything. Um, but unfortunately for him, uh, it's not safe because I have a Ratnik over there. And so the Ratnik clears the way for um, Uxia. Uh, so um, Uxia, I choose to use her now and I start taking stuff out like Leigong. Uh, and then by, so this, this again is like, I could continue to push her, right? So I, the first thing I do is I, is I use three pieces to take out three things. I didn't use, uh, I didn't use, um, one piece to do everything. I could have used Uxia to take out everything. That would be entirely reasonable. Uxia is more than capable of taking Azentia, Legong, and, um, and the Yanho all by herself because she's got 
dual assault pistols, right? It's ridiculous. Um, but instead what I did was I spent only what I needed to spend to advance the position. I want the Ratnik here at this corner in cover taking advantage of its HRL fire lanes. So to give you an idea of where that is, let's back up to the, the, the top picture here, um, there. So this is where I want the Ratnik because if the Ratnik is here, it's watching now this center line. I don't need to advance the Ratnik over here and expose its left flank. I really just want it here so it's looking directly across the center line and anything that comes through here has to deal with it outside of 16 where its range bands are. The other thing that I want to do is I want to advance Uxia here to take out this. I want I want a high probability chance of taking out Legong. Burst 5 is a good way of doing that within 8. So that's what I chose to take out Legong who's uh, basically over here behind this building you can't see. Uh, and then I want to get my tank hunter who is right here at the moment into play. So. Uh, I, and I also want to protect Uxia because she's my box grabber. So Uxia comes out, pokes out, takes out the thing. She comes back here to set up for the box grab on turn three. And then I want to advance the tank hunter to also cover this fire lane and then really build a, a soft wall across the center that he has to advance across and spend orders either dealing with these two threats or pushing through with cautious move or something like that. So that's why I did the thing that I did instead of just you know ramboing something through. I used, I used the opportunity to kill stuff to develop positions of my pieces. So I use the opportunity to kill the Zensha um, with my Ratnik. Um, and then now my Ratnik is a good position. I use the opportunity here to kill Lei Gong, who is represented by the Sien, um, and then get Uxia off her, she was in the second story of this building, right? So I needed to get her off the second story of the building because it takes orders to get down. So I might as well get some payback for that and uh, and return on investment by killing Lei Gong. And then finally, I want to advance the tank hunter and use the right tool for the job and take out this Yanhao uh, autocannon, which is the freaking amazing gun. And then <laughs> because I felt like I would, like I was like, well, he's here. Um, and and because I developed the position of both Uxia and the Ratnik, I feel confident now that I can take the risk of challenging Luna with the Tank Hunter. Sure. Right. So it's interesting. Something you did in this game um, to kind of briefly summarize it is <clears throat> you you didn't Rambo, right? Like right. you you used your fire. You used the tools that you had to advance your position, as opposed to using your powerful. You know, like having some HMG go out there and like. Blah, 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 like kill everything mm -hmm. like i win the game because i smashed you like and that's it's a little bit different than the way a lot of people approach playing the game the way a lot of people play in general they would have gone you know a lot of people would have been like i've got yushia i've got to over infiltrate her otherwise why am i paying for you know the the ability to do that um and i will do so at the squishiest places possible to kill as much as i can before she inevitably goes down right uh, and that is that is a you know that's an aggressive that is a, a way people often play. Um, it is seldom that I see people not over infiltrate with her, um, but kind of main you know maintaining a pace over the course of the game. Like you said, your goal wasn't to win turn one. Your goal is to win turn three. Right. Exactly. So to yeah, take it back to I, so go ahead. I think the I think the tactical judgment that you exercised was outstanding. I think that uh, recognizing that it was turn three scoring, recognizing that Usha was. Uh, a critical piece that would give you a strong advantage in securing that scoring. And then I think that you were able to really dictate the pace of the game when you took out the Yanho HRMC. It's easy to imagine your opponent feeling the tactical stress of losing the really significant uh, lane contester, you know, the high burst long range choice. And you can see that manifest in uh, his turn two movement 
pushing everything into the midfield where you're able to, you know, apply a very sort of measured counterattack, not squandering resources, but instead sort of distributing your attack across multiple units so that you weren't putting too much individual. You, you weren't assigning a heavy lift to any one piece, which I particularly like. Uh, the more that you Rambo something, uh, the greater the probability, of course, that they're going to run into trouble eventually. That's just statistics. But, um, you know, being able to uh, apply the right pieces to the job uh, after you've created that great opportunity of baiting your opponent forward, uh, I like that. That's, that's If there were a textbook, it would be a textbook. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I, I really writing. appreciate that thought. Um, I, I, this, I, I try to... I very much enjoy writing these things. I mean, it's a lot of work, but at some point I do enjoy it. Uh, and I, I try to write it like I would write a textbook about Infinity and try to keep it fun for myself. Um, and I would encourage people, this tournament in particular, uh, I, I am particularly pleased, not with my performance, but my explanation of what happened, right? I mean, like, it doesn't, it's not relevant whether I won or lost. It's not relevant what place I got. It's not relevant that I succeeded or failed with this ridiculous list concept that I had. Um, what's relevant is that uh, the choices I made were purposeful, and I feel like I articulated them well in my prose. And so if you want to understand what that looks like, right, like what pur purposeful choices in list building, what pur purposeful choices in movement and positioning and deployment and development of like all your pieces over the, the, the course of a game, uh, I, I would strongly encourage you to read the, the series of the two days of this tournament. Um, but yeah, just, just to wrap up the game really quick, um, exactly what you think happens, happens, right? So he, uh, Burl gets con uh, more and more, uh, uh, more and more uh, desperate. And basically mm -hmm. the right side where the Hulang was is a complete stall out for both of us. We just trade fire, nothing effective, effective happens. And then on turn three, as, as we said I, I would do, I did exactly what I said, ran Uxie in, grabbed the box, retreated to a building that I knew he didn't have the orders to get to, uh, and just like went prone on a roof and just sort of sat there. And I was like, okay, your turn. And so his only way to come close to like a tie was to rocket something into my deployment zone. Um, but now... Um, <laughs> this is what happens. So his cho his tool of choice, I think with like five orders left or something like that, or four orders left and a lieutenant order, something like that, was um, running Sunzay in to grab the box. So right. total immunity. Yep. Yeah, that's the tool to use. Um, but right, basically, right here, he had to get past. So this thum on the top left here is the Ratnik shooting at it. All this nonsense is the Antipos throwing a throwing a trench hammer. I've got mines going off. I've got chasseurs. And then if he got any, if he once he crosses this green line, two Urigans open up, right? So yeah. this whole thing, right, is like at the very beginning, set up your defense and then try not to degrade it, right? And then I also added to the defense with my positioning in the mid game. Right, so that Ratnik was not going to be relevant to this fight, but because I developed it in the mid game, he is now. Sure. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's um, you did a really good job in all of your games. That one in particular. Um, we'll be sure to add a link to that yep. in the uh, in the show notes. Um, did we lose it also looks like I'm still here. I still have audio. I don't know. You're, Maybe you're, just the camera cut out. Oh, there it goes. It comes. It's back now. Yeah. Hey. Um, but yeah, so we'll be sure to include a link to the the battle reports in the show notes. Um, oh, I probably didn't transition that, didn't I? <laughs> Whoops. No, you didn't. Okay. Um, there you go. So there there the, it is. That's what it looks like. That's a lot of sound effects you had to type up. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so we'll be sure to include that. Those are all great reports to read for positioning. They're 
they're spot on. Like you said, like you didn't take any, you didn't take any of the obvious things, right? You weren't taking um, any vet Kazakhs with APHMGs to go down there and just like mow things down. You didn't take any of the things that people um, oftentimes would be spending a lot of orders on, maybe except Yusha, right? But you used her in a different capacity. Um, and so you actually had the orders every turn to develop your plan as you needed. Yep. So. Yeah, the highest burst thing I had was a burst three marksman rifle. You're a madman. You're <laughs> the you are the infinity hipster. Yes. Um, well, guys, I think it's that time. And uh, everybody, you've wasted a, another perfectly good evening listening to the Diceabide Live. My goodness. <laughs> I think it went well, John. Kick it off with uh, where to find us. Yeah, so you can find us on YouTube. Basically, all of the podcast things. Again, a reminder. Um, We'll be posting uh, the podcast with podcast chapters so you can see what we're looking at. This particular um, uh, uh, mission probably would be worth looking at. Uh, this episode would probably be worth looking at the video because I do a lot of gesturing with my mouse. Uh, so that will be helpful for, for those of you uh, in podcast line watching or listening. Uh, you can find us on Twitch, 830 Pacific on Tuesdays in the, in the evening. Um, and if you want to support us, you like what we do, we have a Patreon. Uh, that's all. All the links are on our uh, Twitch page, twitch.tv slash abide, and we'll add those in the description of all the things you might be finding us on. Um, yeah. Not only not only can they support us on Patreon, but we have we have crossed the threshold. We are now officially Twitch affiliates, so hey. people can even subscribe to our channel. Um, and that's actually not a bad thing to do if you want to get reminded about all the you know those upcoming Brutal Cities video that I'm be working on. Yeah, um, there you go. Building their terrain, so we are we're developing more content theoretically uh, in the future for that. Um, yeah, Michael, so, is yeah, there anything uh, Infinity or non-Infinity related you'd like to to plug and use uh, as a soapbox right now? Uh, not too much to add, guys. Uh, it's, it's been a real pleasure. Nice to connect with you both, especially since, uh, you know, Rose City Raid this year, of course, but uh, maybe 2021 we'll get a chance to hang out in person. Yeah, exactly. Right, it would be a good time. Sharp you off all the numbers on, on the swag. And <laughs> yeah, right? Just there you go. Draw a big one. That's truly cyberpunk. So, yeah, be sure to to like us, follow us, five-star us, which, whichever is appropriate for the, the format which you are enjoying us. Um, and that will all help us to uh, to make the best content we can for you guys. Thanks for watching, everyone. And on that note, yeah, thanks for watching. Have a good night. Thank you.